Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we talk about another hematologic emergency. This time, something that we've been referencing, I think, at least a handful of times on the show so far. And that is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT, as it's usually known. And guys, I'm, I'm excited because I feel like we've been leading up to this for a while now. And we keep on talking about it. it came up during thrombocytopenia. It came up during, you know, some of our um, initial episodes on uh, hematologic emergencies. We think about it all the time, especially when we're on consults. And so I'm just excited to share with our listeners everything that they need to know about uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Yeah, this is the one topic that you get consulted on so frequently, but it's also such a nuanced thing that it's really hard to know what to do. And and one of the things I learned as a fellow, if you look at the cardiac ICU, there are so many positive hits there. And the question is, what do you do with that? And how do you correlate the clinical findings to know if you, if you have this diagnosis of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? And man, what a fascinating pathophysiology too. There's a, a pretty good pathophysiologic reason that we're able to explain now as to why this happens so frequently in the cardiac ICU, and we'll get into that a little bit too. I can't wait to science with Dan. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's always good sciencing with Dan, and and right now the best way to science with Dan is when he's wearing his Hawaiian shirt. We have, we have matching fellow on call Hawaiian church for the Twitter space because we didn't know Twitter space was just audio, but he's wearing that over a button up shirt. It's, it's making it's me feel very like PhD, like it's not a credential <laughs> I actually possess, but I don't know. A lot of my attendings are, I guess, PIs back in the day would always wear the, uh, the worst shirts. I feel like this carries on that tradition. Yeah. And the double shirt is what you need. I mean, that's, that's just perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, uh, if only you could see us, I'll... Maybe I'll get a photo up on our social media, so be sure to check that out. Dan rocking our newest line of Hawaiian shirts as Couture Day, uh, the fellow on call. Um, so without further ado, let's roll the show. All right, guys. Uh, how's everybody doing today? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Good. Yeah. yeah. Ready for a luau. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dan, I'm I'm just I'm really digging the tropical vibes. I I really really appreciate the outfit today. Yeah, of course. <laughs> One thing I do have to say, and then we'll we'll get to the real show and stop bantering too much. But my fiance just texted me. She said, "Is it okay if I watch another episode of Selling Sunset without you?" Vivek, that's Ooh. that's a no. That's a hard I mean, no. Who would ever think that's okay? No, not okay. Not okay. <laughs> that's crazy. I, I I am also going to propose that maybe when we're done with this show, we should start a, another podcast just talking about Netflix specials, because I think collectively we watch a lot of Netflix <laughs> and have very strong opinions about popular Netflix television shows. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, think it's right. a great idea. It's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> we'll get working on that. I use some of my research time in my second year <laughs> to make that happen. All right, guys. So I wanted to talk over a case that I, I recently saw on a console month down in the hospital. It was a, I got called about a 55-year-old gentleman who had been admitted to, to the cardiac ICU after coming in for an elective cabbage. Uh, 
he had come into his primary care doctor with some angina and um, they did a stress test. They did cath. They found out he had triple vessel disease. So they had to come in and, and get him uh, get him revascularized. And his surgery went well. Apparently, that's what the, the surgeons told me. But uh, we got called on the eighth post-operative day because uh, the patient had a DVT despite anticoagulation. They were a little confused. They were saying, you know, we really careful about this. Uh, we made sure he was therapeutic this whole time. I looked through the APTTs. They were all in the therapeutic range. And sure enough, on, on his ultrasound, he had an extensive right lower extremity DVT all the way from the mid-calf up to his common femoral vein. The, the primary team's main question for me was, you know, this patient had been thrombocytopenic since his operation, and they wanted me to weigh in and, and see kind of what I thought about the safety of anticoagulation in the setting of his, his declining platelet count. In this case, uh, his pre-op platelet count was 294. Post-op day one, dropped to 107, kind of stayed in the 90s for the next couple of days. Post-op day four, it started to come up a little bit, back up to 115 uh, and up to 148 by post-op day five. But post-op day six, down to 108. Post-op day seven, down to 69. Post-op day eight, down to 54. That's when I get called. So, yeah, what do you guys think uh, about about this case? Do you have any concerns with what I've read so far? You know, I think that any time a patient who has been on heparin develops a thrombocytopenia and clot, we need to think about HIT. We, you know, we've, t- we've talked about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and we keep on calling it HIT, but that's heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. We have to think about it. We have to evaluate for it. And so this episode is really going to focus on that. But I, first of all, I think we need to define HIT. So, uh, Ronak, you, you know, take take us home here. What What is HIT? Yeah. So, you know, I'm definitely going to look to the great Dan Hauserath to talk more about the <laughs> patho- pathophys of, of this because – Quite frankly, it's, it is really fascinating. But, you know, as, as most of our listeners probably know, heparin is amongst the most common anticoagulant that we use in patients who require anticoagulation, especially when they're hospitalized. And so, unfortunately, one of the pathologic things that can happen is patients can effectively form almost like an allergy towards, towards heparin. And so that is essentially the underlying premise behind heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And so there, there, if you read about it in the textbook, there's actually two different types. There's a type one, which we seldom if ever think about because it's not really pathologic. It is just a uh, transient decrease in platelets after heparin um, has been started. But type two is actually the one that we do worry about. This is the antibody-mediated process, the one that causes platelet activation and consumption. And so it's it's imp- one other thing that I want to emphasize, because this actually confused me a lot when I was in residency, is I didn't understand the difference between HIT HIT versus HIT HITT. And I kept thinking some people were just misspelling it, things were off. But I later understood that the one with two T's is uh, the nomenclature that we use when there's also associated thrombosis. So when you're finding not only thrombocytopenia, but also thrombosis. And that's also important because, again, thrombosis is going to be a possibility as part of the disease manifestation of having of having hit. And so, you know, again, I, I, I th- my understanding is that essentially the heparin molecules are binding to platelet factor four, which is this chemokine that's released from activated platelets. 
And that complex associated with the antibody is then able to activate platelets, which causes platelets to clump because that's what activated platelets do. And also activated platelets further release more platelet factor four. So you kind of just get this vicious cycle um, where you have more of the uh, the platelet factor four in circulation, further potentiating the effects of hit. And so to my understanding, that's kind of the basic pathophys of the disease. But Dan, please enlighten us. And I, I know that this is more complicated than just that. Hey, you, you nailed it. This is, uh, that's, that's exactly what's going on. So platelet factor. So we'll start out. Heparin is, uh, it's glycosamine glycan. So that's, it's a long negatively charged molecule. You can have a variety of lengths of heparin. That's why we talk about, you know, low molecular weight heparin versus unfractionated heparin. And platelet factor four is positively charged. And so these two compounds can interact. And when they're in just the wrong ratio or right ratio, however you want to phrase it, they, they can form these big rafts of, uh, sort of like bricks and mortar with the platelet factor four being the bricks and the well, heparin in between being the mortar. And they sort of tile together. And when there are these ultra large complexes of platelet factor four and heparin together, the body can sort of react to that. And it turns out that it, it seems like, at least a lot of studies are suggesting, that um, humans just produce an IgM antibody that constitutively that recognizes these ultra-large complexes. Not fully clear why that's the case, but they once that IgM gets a chance to see one of those ultra-large complexes, assuming that that sort of magic ratio has been reached, it can the body can decide to expand that clone that's producing the IgM class switch to making an IgG and then you you basically you have hit and so that's that's part of the reason this happens so commonly in the hospitals because anybody has the potential to develop these antibodies they're exposed to heparin and part of the reason why it happens so frequently on the cardiac surgery floors is when somebody's going under for a cabbage they're flooded with so much heparin that as their body metabolizes that heparin off, they inevitably pass through that window where the sort of stoichiometric ratio is just right for this pathophysiology to develop. And um, it's, uh, it's, a really bad, it's a really bad problem. It's one of the most hypercoagulable states out there. Uh, and that's why it's so important to recognize because once these antibodies are around and start interacting with platelets and monocytes and, and these sort of big rafts of uh, heparin and platelet factor four. Clots can just form everywhere, arterial and venous. It's uh, it's it's terrible. And and because this is such a ubiquitous issue or potentially ubiquitous issue, but also kind of mixed into the general thrombocytopenia consult kind of pool that we often get. I was just curious, how do you guys like triage? You know, which of these cases may be more likely to be hit? Which ones you have to take more seriously for thrombocytopenia? What's what's kind of your approach there? Yeah, that's a really important question. And before we get into that, and and really what we're talking about is something called the 4T score, which is something that you calculate, and I'll go through that. But before I get into that, I just want to say that with this patient, one of the interesting things that, that Dan described when he was talking about the platelet count is that you initially had this drop in platelets and post-op day one, and then it started to increase around post-op day four to day five, and then it dropped again. The reason why that happens in postoperatively in general, if you have consumption of platelets due to bleeding or due to external devices, in this case like a bypass pump, your platelets will drop, but it takes time for your 
body to regenerate those platelets. You have to release something called thrombopoietin. It's kind of like EPO. It's called TPO. But it takes time for those platelets to form. It can take several days, you know, three, four days before we start seeing a bump in the platelet count, which we saw in this patient that they had this, this decrease in platelet count, but then it started to improve. The fascinating thing about HIT is that we've been talking about how it's antibody mediated. So your body has to take time to make those antibodies and for this whole cascade to occur that Dan and Ronick described. And that takes at, at least on the order of about five days or so, particularly in somebody who hasn't developed these antibodies before and doesn't have that amnestic response that we talk about in immunology. So many of our patients, you know, they, they're developing HIT for the first time if they're going to get HIT. And it takes time, and that gets into the T-score. So this patient fits classically. Platelet counts dropped. Their body released endogenous thrombopoietin. They started to increase their platelet counts. Then it dropped again because the antibodies that they formed to this uh, platelet factor for heparin complex ended up causing activation and consumption of more platelets, leaving, leading to worsening thrombocytopenia and ultimately thrombosis. So let's talk about the 4T score, because not all of our patients will have had a cardiac surgery and had this drop in platelets that came up and then dropped again. What the 4T score, the first T is thrombocytopenia. And you get more points if your thrombocytopenia had a greater than 50% decrease, or the, the nadir is greater than 20, then that gives you your most the most points. But the bottom line is, hit in general, half your platelets will be dropped and your platelets won't go below 20. And we talked about the differential diagnosis in a pre previous episode about for a very low platelet count. And so those would go into those other things like the TTP or the DIC or the ITP when we think about platelets getting less than 20. Timing is important. So like I said, it's going to take about five days for you to develop those antibodies and start, you know, for forming clots and, act and consuming those platelets that are being activated. And so the timing is around five to 10 days classically. And there are other nuances with the timing. If you had a hyperacute response in thrombocytopenia with heparin exposure, that's the idea that you probably had an amnestic response that maybe at some other point you, you developed the antibodies, but you didn't get the syndrome. And now you're having a, another exposure and your body rapidly releases the antibodies and causes this thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. The third T is is thrombosis. So when you activate these platelets, if you have new thrombosis, uh, that 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 gives you more points. And again, there's nuances that you can look at that will link to our show notes. But the bottom line is, did you form a clot? Because that's the pathophysiology. Pathophysiology again is is consuming your platelets, forming clots. So you get a thrombocytopenia. Developing antibodies that takes time on the order of five days or so. So timing is important thrombosis as you activate these platelets. So did you form a clot, whether that's venous or arterial? And then the last thing is, can you think of other causes of thrombocytopenia? We have that schema that we've talked about in our prior episodes about all of these other causes of thrombocytopenia. And this is a more nebulous part of the scoring that really is clinical judgment, but, but it's important because if you can think of, you know, five, 10 other causes of why a patient got thrombocytopenic, maybe it's not hit. But if you can only think of just maybe one or two other causes, then that really rings the alarm bells of your pretest probability that this is going to be hit. So, so that last one is called other with the T for other causes of thrombocytopenia. And really what that's telling us to do is let's actually have a good pretest probability that we think this is hit. 
And the point of this 4T score is to screen for whether you should send for the HIT ELISA antibody test. So that gets into the diagnosis of this, but the important thing is think about the pathophysiology and it, it includes the timing of forming antibodies, the fact that your platelets drop, the fact that you form a clot, and that you have to have a good pretest probability before you really think this is HIT. Another important diagnostic t- test to get if you have a high suspicion of HIT is to get four extremity Dopplers. Even if you're suspecting HIT and you don't see an overt evidence of a DVT or thrombosis, that patient may still have a thrombosis, and that has implications for the duration of anticoagulation. So as you're sending off that HIT ELISA test, if you have a high suspicion, I'd go ahead and get those four extremity Dopplers to see if the patient has thrombosis. If you go through our patient's data, he ends up scoring a 7, which is almost as high a score as you can get on the 4T score. Uh, He gets two points for the degree of platelet fall, Uh, and his nadir being above 20. He gets two points for the timing, which is, you know, between five and 10 days. He gets two points for having proven thrombosis. Uh, It was symptomatic. And I'm giving him one point, saying maybe there's a possible other cause. You know, the guy's in the hospital. There's any number of reasons. Maybe he's getting an infection or something. We can can surmise there may be other reasons that he could be thrombocytopenic. So I'll give him only one point for that. And that comes out to 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 1, so 7. That is a high probability of hit. So in this case, we did go ahead and ask the team to send off that ELISA. And... In this case, the ELISA came back at 4.6, which is pretty, pretty floridly positive. And uh, that's just detecting the presence of this antibody. What we don't know is whether or not the antibody is actually responsible for this thrombosis. We don't know if it's interacting with platelets in such a way that's putting him at risk for thrombosis. Do y'all know how we make that distinction? I don't actually, Dan. So I, I think I just want to clarify what you're saying then. So if a person comes back with a positive ELISA test, that means that we can continue to be suspicious that they have hit, but they don't technically have hit yet. Is that is that correct to say? The way I'd put it is we know they have an antibody that is uh, the hit antibody in their bloodstream. It's an antibody that is interacting with their platelets. And I'm sorry, that's interacting with platelet factor four and heparin, because that's, that's what the assay tests for. And granted, it's it's a very sensitive test, not particularly specific, but we know that there's some antibody in there that's interacting with the antigen on the plate that um, what we don't know is whether or not that is activating platelets and, and setting a patient up for potential thrombosis. And the way we can test for that is with a sort of confirmatory assay. In our lab, we use the serotonin release assay. Really great test. It's 95% specific and sensitive. And you might kind of think, well, if it's that, if the test characteristics are that great, why are we not just sending that as our first test? There's a good reason. And it is a, it's an incredibly challenging test to perform. This test actually requires that we have a platelet donor from a specific pool of platelet donors that our lab knows how their platelets behave in this test. And we know that their results will be valid. So we have to call one of them in, have them give us some platelets, load those platelets with radioactive carbon. Uh, a serotonin labeled with radioactive carbon, and then expose those platelets to heparin uh, under a series of different conditions. So we see if there's any release of that radioactive serotonin with no heparin. We see if there's release of radio ser- radioactive serotonin at a therapeutic concentration of heparin. And then we look for release with a supertherapeutic concentration of heparin. 
And this gets at what we were talking about with that, that stoichiometric ratio of platelet factor four and, uh, and heparin. If you go super therapeutic, if you just flood this person with heparin, those rafts can't really form because the ratio between platelet factor four and heparin just isn't right. Uh, and so the classic positive, uh, serotonin release assay is nothing on your negative control with no heparin. You get release of serotonin with the therapeutic concentration of heparin and no release with the super therapeutic concentration of heparin. That's the classic positive confirmatory assay. It does, because of all this sort of work, it takes the lab tech a full day to do it. It's often not available the same day that you get your first result back. So once that, you know, if you have somebody on with a thrombus and with a high OD or with a positive, positive ELISA, you kind of have to start presumptively treating just because this is such a serious condition. Uh, and then you can maybe back off if the SRA comes back negative. But in this case, we, we pulled the trigger and we started managing this patient as though it were hit. And, and I think that's great because, you know, sometimes even when we send the hit antibody, if we have a high 4T score and have a really high pretest probability that the patient has hit, we, we automatically stop the heparin and switch the anticoagulant, which is really important. So that's how that T score is really helping you determine, you know, we, we don't want to wait on hit. You don't want to wait until they develop new clots. You really want to treat them soon rather than later. And as Ronick talked to at the beginning of the show, if you have that no thrombosis case, you don't want to let that patient develop thrombosis because that commits them to a longer length of anticoagulation at the end of all of this. And so it, it has very, very important implications to treat this early if you have a high sus- index of suspicion. And and I love how Dan explained that it's perfect is that we have antibody present, but is that antibody actually doing anything? And we can only know that with this serotonin release assay activity test that tells us, is there actually something happening with that antibody causing the issue that we have with HIT? And and I just want to reiterate a point. If you send a DAT test on everyone that rolls through the hospital, they might have an antibody, but that doesn't mean they have hemolytic anemia. And the same case is true here. The, the important thing to not send a hit ELISA on everybody is because if you do have a positive hit ELISA, you have to treat them. And it's it's not, you're committing that patient to uh, a pretty aggressive treatment. We're going to talk about that right now. So Ronak, how would you treat heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? Yeah, yeah, that's that's so important. So as at Vivek, I think you kind of alluded to it. I think the first step is you want to stop the heparin. And this also includes, you know, the sub-Q heparin that somebody might be getting or Things like anoxaparin, um, these are all heparin-related derived products. So um, any heparin product you want to stop using, and you're going to be switching them uh, to a different type of anticoagulant. At our institution, at Rural University, we we typically reach for either Argachibrand, which is one of our direct thrombin inhibitors, or Fondaparinox, which is a factor 10A inhibitor. And so essentially, you are continuing to give them anticoagulation with a non-heparin-derived product because of that risk of thrombosis that can develop based on the pathophys that we talked about underlying the mechanism behind HIT. And then, you know, something that I learned very early on in my heme consults is my attendings were very religious about ensuring that heparin allergies are added to the allergy list so that this patient never gets heparin again in the future, you know, unless there's a situation where it might be necessary. But um, in general, we want to try to avoid heparin in these in these patients because of this immunogenic potential that it has in this patient. And then, you know, the guidelines about when to like how long to keep someone on anticoagulation for are are 
A, a little bit various, but you know, the, the American Society for Hematology guidelines actually say that we should be keeping these patients on anticoagulation until their platelets are recovered. And they define that as a platelet count greater than 150,000. And then in patients that actually have thrombosis associated with their HIT, so HITT, these patients you're going to treat with therapeutic anticoagulation for three to six months. And so, you know, obviously they don't have to stay in the hospital on a drip, but, and you'd be putting them on an oral agent, but they need some oral agent for three to six months in the same way that we treat someone with like a DVT or a PE that's been provoked. Yeah. And I think that's great that, that the bottom line that Ronick said beautifully is that we, stop the heparin and switch the anticoagulation and make sure they're on a therapeutic amount of anticoagulation. We can see hit in somebody getting prophylactic heparin, prophylactic Lovenox or prophylactic sub-Q heparin. It, it can happen. And you want to make sure that if, even though the thrombocytopenic, that they're on therapeutic anticoagulation. And like Renick said, at Rouleau, we ha- we generally reach for our Gatraband or Fondaparinux, but you can also use the DOAX. You can use Xarelto in a case with HIT. There's data supporting that, uh, and you, you might see something like Bivalorudin. So there are other options, just non-heparin-based products. And I think as we get more studies done, may- maybe DOAX are the way to go. The reason why it's helpful using those other anticoagulants is that they're, they're drips, there's infusions, you can titrate them, you have better control over them, particularly when the patient's thrombocytopenic and might bleed, particularly in a post-op patient is, is one of the reasons why we don't just reach for that DOAC immediately. But it, it's good to know that you have options and, you know, it's, it's, there's still a lot of data to be gleaned from this and there's still a lot of research to be done. We know how to treat it, but there are so many different options and routes that you can go with it. Yeah, classically, this was a, a kind of warfarin or bust situation, um, but we're certainly mount, evidence is constantly mounting for uh, broadening the use of, of um, DOAX in all situations, and, and this is one of them. But, um, you know, I will say nothing really makes you paranoid like like managing hit patient. Uh, that heparin is just everywhere. In fact, if we're managing a patient who's coming in from an outside hospital and they're starting to develop some thrombocytopenia, I generally just assume they were exposed to heparin at some point. Uh, at that other hospital, you know, it, it, sometimes hospital records are incomplete. Uh, try as try as we do to to keep a record of everything we do for people. You know, sometimes things slip through the cracks, like sub Q heparin, and so just being really conscious of all the potential sources for heparin. Dialysis circuits are a great example of this. You know, it, it doesn't take much uh, once somebody has this antibody kicking around to cause trouble. And so, you know, we'll we'll talk more about. You know, in future episodes about rechallenging patients with heparin with a history of hit, very small number of scenarios where you need to do that. But uh, yeah, like we said, get them off the heparin from everywhere. Start therapeutic anticoagulation with something, trend that platelet count until it recovers, and then determine uh, duration of anticoagulation based on what's happened to them. And I think from a, both from the side of a, of a resident that may have called a consult for a hit in the past, and also as the person now doing those consults, um, I think what Dan highlighted about trying to get a history about prior heparin exposure is so key. And so if you are the person calling a consult, just take that extra second to go through any other records that you have, or just ask the patient whether or not they've been exposed to heparin before, because that may actually help us kind of triage the case uh, immensely and kind of help you take care of the patient. And then, of course, on our end, as Dan said, if we don't have that information, perhaps just assume uh, and err on the side of caution just because of the high rate of mortality associated with this uh, with this uh, 
disease state. Another thing that I, that always confused me and that I always wondered about is if we stop the heparin and we're not giving this patient more heparin products, why do they need to be on therapeutic anticoagulation for so long? And one of the attendings at Rouleau told me that, and this is a really great explanation, that your body also has endogenous heparin-like molecules. So this cascade can continue on even if you're not getting exogenous heparin, which is why we wait until the platelet count recovers and we ha- we know that we don't have this ongoing cascade because even if you don't have that heparin, your body has heparin-like molecules, which can still lead to platelet activation and thrombosis. So that's why we also not only... For, for, for patients with thrombosis, start that therapeutic anticoagulation. But even if a patient doesn't have thrombosis, we still do therapeutic anticoagulation until their platelet count recovers. Guys, this is just, this is fascinating. I, Dan, I understand why you got so giddy when we talked about choosing HIT <laughs> as the topic uh, that we'll be yeah. discussing today. This is awesome. I'm really looking forward to our uh, weird hit situations future podcast where we talk about, you know, a case of anamnestic response. We talk about spontaneous hit or vaccine associated. We'll see, Dan. We'll see. Oh, yeah. It's coming. (laughs) I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) It's going to be a while, though. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, Vivek has to go watch Selling Sunset. So I think that's all about the time that we have on today's episode. So until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace. Peace.